is Camilla, and you're listening to the Cat's Whisker, a time machine for all those who love rock and roll and want to know everything about it. People, stories, and the music that changed the world. In a few words, it doesn't matter whether you've lived through those years or, just like me, you've always wondered what it was like. I have loads of stories to tell and great music to play. So, let's roll! Hey everyone, welcome back to the Cat's Whisker. This is going to be quite a dark episode because uh, today... February the 3rd to be precise. It's the 64th anniversary of one of the saddest and tragic events in the history of rock and roll music. The plane crash that killed promising rock and roll stars Buddy Holly, Richie Valens and J. Pete Richardson, aka The Big Bopper. Don McLean in his famous song American Pie called this moment the day the music died. And it was a topical moment for the history of the United States as well. Some actually have compared it to the Kennedy assassination. Because for many, the day the music died was also another step that pushed the American public towards the loss of its innocence. And besides the death of three amazing rising music stars, what is really interesting here, and it's also probably the reason why many people are still so fascinated by it, is that in this particular case, everything that could have gone wrong went very wrong. And today, I'll tell you all about it while remembering the great artists we lost. It was a cold winter, the one of 1959. But that has never stopped rock and roll. It was new, it was exciting. And even if you were an average selling performer, you could still make a living out of it. Teenagers gathered in ballrooms all around the US to watch their idols perform. Rock and roll was now getting more and more established and could count on many great performers and songwriters that were basically pioneers in an industry that had never made so much money before. And if you were lucky enough, you could get all your favorite acts on the same bill. That was the idea behind many tours that were promoted during those years and the winter dance party at Lined by Buddy Holly, Dion and the Bellmans, Richie Valens and the Big Bopper was no exception. But let's start from the beginning. Let's talk about these guys and how they ended up on tour together. The youngest artist on the Winter Dance Party Tour was definitely Richard Stevens Valenzuela, Richie Valens. He was 17 and his music career, that started only eight months before the tour, was definitely taken off. Valens grew up in the San Fernando Valley and his parents were Mexican. Growing up in a household where he listened to both mariachi and rhythm and blues, it didn't take long before Richie embraced his love for music and taught himself how to play guitar, drums and even the trumpet. Everyone knew how good he was, even when he was in school people used to call him the Little Richard of San Fernando. And since we're talking about his school, there is a fact about Richie Valens' school that I find quite... chilling? He used to attend Pacoima Junior High School at the time of the Pacoima Mid-Air Collision. On the 31st of January 1957, only two years and a few days before Valence's death in a plane crash, two planes collided mid-air and crashed on a schoolyard. Many people got injured and some died, but interestingly enough, the 15-year-old Richie wasn't there that day. Why? Because he had to go to his grandfather's funeral. But even if he wasn't present, the event shook him deeply. So much so that from that moment on, 
he was afraid of flying. A fear he had to overcome soon, because just a year after, when he was only 16, Valens joined the Silhouettes, a local band that needed a guitarist. He soon became the vocalist of the band as well, and not long after, his performance was noticed by a small record label in Hollywood that quickly signed him and produced his first hit, Valens's original song called Come On Let's Go. A few months later, in November 1958, Valens released another record, a double A side with two great songs. The first one was called Donna. Valens had written it for his girlfriend Donna Ludwig, his high school sweetheart from 1957 till his death. The B-side of that record, though, is probably his most famous song, La Bamba, a Mexican folk song that Valens heard a lot while growing up. In its traditional version, it is a mix of Spanish, indigenous and African musical influences. The lyrics changed all the time as performers used to improvise a lot. In fact, even before Richie Valens made its version, many musicians actually recorded their interpretation of La Bamba. His rock and roll rendition, though, sold over a million copies and ranks on the Rolling Stone list of the best 500 songs of all time, and is considered by the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as one of the records that helped shape in rock and roll. And it has also been selected by the Library of Congress to be part of the National Recording Registry, where culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant pieces are preserved. And even though he unfortunately didn't have a very long career, his legacy is still living and definitely left a mark, broadening the horizons of the music that changed the world. And in an era where these communities were still massively marginalized, Richie Valens became the first person to ever bring the Spanish language into rock and roll. He is also considered a pioneer of both Chicano rock and Latin rock, influencing not only Hispanic musicians, but artists from all cultural backgrounds. And if Richie Valens was the youngest of the party, Giles Perry Richardson, who was 28, was the oldest. Not many people actually remember him, but let me tell you, this guy was cool as fuck. He was born in Texas in 1930 and started his career in music, working as a DJ in a local radio. His life in the 50s was pretty busy. After getting married in 1952, a daughter arrived just a year later. After attending military service for two years, from 1955 to 1957, he started working as a DJ again, and not long after, a sponsor decided to give him his radio show. And that's when, from the bop, a dance that was very popular at the time, coined the stage name Big Bopper. He quickly became the most listened show of the station and started breaking record after record. In May 1957, in fact, locked in a little lobby in a theater in Beaumont, Texas, Richardson became the person that run the longest continuous on-air broadcasting. His program, in fact, was live for five days, two hours and eight minutes, during which he played 1,821 records and managed to shower only during the five minutes news breaks. What a trooper! But this still leaves me with some questions. I mean, I guess you put on a song and run to the bathroom and shower in five minutes. But when did he sleep? And how did he sleep? Although I kind of have the feeling that the guy didn't sleep much because he seems like one of those people that never stops. After his great career as a DJ, Richardson became quite successful as a guitarist and singer-songwriter. 
he got his breakthrough with the song Chantilly Lace in the summer of 1958. God, I love that song. His voice, his interpretation. It is like a comedy bit where a man is on the phone with his girlfriend and is telling her what he likes about her. And it's thanks to his great imagination and sense of humor that the Big Bopper is also credited as the person that coined the term music video. And most of all, the person that also produced the first examples of music videos back in 1958. Even the Guinness World Records mentions it, stating that the videos made for his hits, Chantilly Lace, Little Red Riding Hood and The Big Bopper's Wedding can be considered the first music videos ever. Go check them out on YouTube! But The Big Bopper wasn't the only Texan on the bill. The biggest act of the night was in fact Buddy Holly, one of the greatest rock and roll musicians and songwriters of all time. Him and his band, The Cricket, are the staple of rock and roll lineups made up of two guitars, bass guitar and drums. And his songs influenced all the major bands that emerged during the 60s, especially the ones of the British invasion. The Beatles, for example, recorded his hit That'll Be The Day as their first professional recording and the Hollies, the Hollies are called the Hollies for God's sake. And even later, in the 90s, the band Weezer had a hit called Buddy Holly, which was probably their most famous song. But back to the actual artist, Buddy Holly's career started seriously taking off right after he finished high school, when he opened several times for Elvis Presley and Bill Haley and the Comets in 1955. Together with his band, The Crickets, Holly released his first hit, That'll Be The Day, in March 1957. And that was just the beginning. Soon other songs climbed the charts, Peggy Sue, Every Day, Oh Boy, Not Fade Away. In 1958, the band toured extensively and tirelessly. To give you an example, when they came to the UK in March, they played 50 shows in 25 days. The touring experience, though, complicated things. With Buddy being the main attraction of the shows and being signed with two different labels at the same time, one with the Crickets and one as a solo act, the members of the Crickets started losing interest in the common project. Another thing that changed the situation drastically was Holly's growing interest towards New York. He, in fact, continued writing and recording songs and spent more and more time in the Big Apple. And one day, when he was there, in the summer of 1958, he had to go to the offices of Pierre Southern, the music publisher that released both his songs and, interestingly enough, the Big Boppers ones as well. Anyway, it was a normal day. He had to go to the offices for a business meeting. But little did he know that another meeting was actually going to change his life that day. As soon as he stepped in, in fact, he saw a girl working behind a reception desk. Her name was Maria Elena Santiago. And in less than a month, she became Maria Elena Holly. It had been love at first sight. When the two got married, the split between Holly and the Crickets became even bigger, especially because of their producer and manager, Norman Petty, who was also in control of all the money earned by the band. Holly and the Crickets noticed that Petty was always struggling to repay the band, so they became quite suspicious. And rightly so. It appeared, in fact, that Petty was putting most of their proceedings into his own account, leaving the band with very little cash. At the end of 1958, Holly decided to end his business relationship with Petty and move permanently to New York, while the Crickets and Petty stayed in Holly's hometown of Lubbock, Texas. His solo career was now officially taken off and his private life seemed better than ever. Maria Elena was pregnant and Buddy had great projects for his future. 
He wanted to create his own label and collaborate with many different artists like Ray Charles and Mahalia Jackson. And interestingly enough, he was also learning to fly to become a pilot like his brothers. He was only 22 and his life was shaping up. Unfortunately though, all the frictions created by Norman Petty's bookkeeping left him in quite a difficult situation financially. With a baby on the way and all these dreams he wanted to achieve, he needed cash. And the winter dance party seemed like the perfect opportunity. So while the original cricket stayed in Lubbock, but he got himself other people, like for example Waylon Jennings on bass, and decided to continue touring as Buddy Holly and the Crickets. But we wouldn't know the whole story if it wasn't for the other headliner of that tour, Dion from Dion and the Bellmans, a vocal group from the Bronx that was also becoming really popular in the late 50s. And it's really thanks to Dion that we know a lot of what happened that tragic night. Also because he was actually supposed to be on that plane. So what was the winter dance party? Well, let's start by saying that tours back then were absolutely crazy and there was never room for a break. Historians actually renamed this particular one the Tour from Hell. It was 25 shows in 25 days where the musicians had to zigzag their way across the freezing Midwest of the United States. Starting on January the 23rd in Milwaukee and ending in Springfield, Illinois on the 15th of February. I suggest you all go and Google the map that shows the connection between the venues. It looks like a bloody nightmare. Constantly going up and down, east and west, you would think they'd play in an area and then leave it for another one. No, they were actually constantly going one way, then the opposite, and then going back to where they came from. And the fact that they had to stay in a rusty old bus didn't make it easier. Everyone, even the headliners, used to sleep in the luggage racks and try to keep warm as best they could. In a way though, that became a bonding experience, especially for Richie Valens, Buddy Holly, The Big Bopper and Dion. They used to laugh together, tell each other stories, get their guitars out and jam while they were on the road. But it was hard sometimes because it was very cold. Even Dion, who was used to the cold New York winters, wrote a song that said, I'm gonna hug my radiator when I hit my hotel room. And if Dion was cold, imagine Richie Valens, who grew up in the San Fernando Valley. His mom had to send him a coat all the way from Pacoima to Duluth. Or the Big Bopper and Buddy Holly, who were definitely less used to that weather coming from Texas. And the fact that not only the heater, but the bus itself kept breaking down, definitely had a toll on them. On the night between January the 31st and February the 1st, when the band is on its way from Duluth, Minnesota to Green Bay, Wisconsin, the bus broke down again. It was so cold that Cow Bunch, Buddy Holly's drummer, got frostbite on his feet and had to go to the hospital. The following night, on the way to Iowa, the bus broke down again, and they all got to the venue pretty late. And that night, February the 2nd, 1959, at the Surf Ballroom in Clear Lake, Iowa, Buddy Holly, J.P. Richardson and Richie Valens performed the last concert. When they arrived at the ballroom, Buddy Holly talked to the promoter about an idea he had and that he had been waiting up for some time. He wanted to charter a plane. After all the problems they had had with the bus, that seemed like a great idea. Getting to the next venue in just a few hours meant they could get their laundry done, have a nice meal, and finally get some sleep in a real bed. After the show started, while the opening act is playing, Holly asked J.P. Richardson, Dion and Richie Valens to follow him. 
After the four had gathered in an empty dressing room, Holly talked to them about his plane idea. Three seats were already taken by the pilot, Roger Peterson, Holly, obviously, and Richardson, who was pretty ill that night and needed some rest. It was now decision time about the last seat. Dion and Valens decided to flip a coin. Dion chose heads. They tossed the coin in the air. Heads won. Perfect then, they think. Dion gets on the plane and Valens will follow on the bus with the others. Holly then showed the others the receipt for the flight from Clear Lake to Fargo, Minnesota, just a few minutes away from their next venue in Moorhead. The ticket was $36 each. Dion was not convinced. $36 was exactly how much his parents used to pay every month for their apartment in the Bronx. He started asking himself, is it worth spending a month's rent over a plane journey to get to a place that is only 400 miles away? And that's when Dion decided to give his seats to Richie Valens. The musicians then left the dressing room, all perfectly aware of who was going to travel by bus and who was going to get on a plane to get to the next venue. That night, like every night, Buddy called his wife, Maria Elena, and told her that he loved her. Richie was on the phone with his parents and told them he missed them and was looking forward to going back home. Then, one at a time, the musicians got on stage. Everyone was having fun. The audience, the artists. Young couples were swaying while holding hands. Teenagers were singing and dancing. They weren't afraid of the future. And even if they were, being there meant that they could forget for just one night. And then at the end, all the ads got back on stage, all together for the grand finale, their last song. After the concert, everyone gets ready. There's a schedule to follow after all. After leaving the gear in the rusty bus, Buddy, JP and Richie make their way to Mason City Municipal Airport, where they meet Roger Peterson, the pilot that will take them to Fargo. He was a young guy, Peterson, nearly 22. He got his private pilot's license in 1955, and three years later, he achieved his goal of becoming a commercial pilot. He was hired by Dwyer Flying Service, and just a few weeks before February 1959, Peterson became a certified limited flight instructor. But even his experience wasn't enough to pass all the strict tests he had to take. In 1958, he failed his instrument flight test. This meant that he was only allowed to fly when he was able to see what was in front of him. And obviously he was banned from flying during the night time. It is definitely a mystery then, why he was on that plane on the night of the 3rd of February, when everything that could go wrong, did go wrong. The weather was obviously a major concern for Peterson on that day. He in fact had called the Air Traffic Communications Service three different times to ask about the weather forecast. But apparently during these phone calls, no one mentioned something really important. The weather was about to seriously deteriorate and low clouds that would make it impossible for him to see the visible horizon were about to appear. To make matters worse, Peterson was assigned a Beechcraft 35 Bonanza that night, an aircraft he had never trained in. And this detail is probably the main reason why the flight didn't last very long. Peterson, before failing his test, had trained more than 50 hours on instruments flying, using planes with a gyroscope that showed a conventional artificial horizon. The Beechcraft Bonanza he got in that night, though, was produced in 1947 and happened to have an older gyroscope that was showing him the directions in the opposite way. Because in an older gyroscope, 
The sky is shown at the bottom and the ground is on top. As soon as the plane takes off at 12.55, the situation is clear. The clouds are too low and since they are literally surrounded by the countryside, Peterson is facing total darkness. And pretty soon it appears obvious that the only solution for Peterson is to try and get as high as he can to surpass the clouds. And the only way to do that is through instruments. The owner of the company, Hubert Dwyer, said that he clearly saw the plane taking off that night. It was a completely normal takeoff. The plane then took a left turn, heading northwest. Dwyer said he was looking at the lights slowly fading away and then descending and disappearing after about five miles. He didn't think anything of it though. It was normal in that weather not having the best visibility after five miles. When five minutes later, air traffic control tried to check in with Peterson though, all the calls are unsuccessful. In the morning though, everyone realizes that something is off. Dwyer gets on a plane and decides to fly around the area looking for the missing airplane. His search didn't take long. Six miles outside the airport, covered in light snow, like the wreckage of the Beechcraft Bonanza. All his passengers and the pilot were dead. Now, many things have been said about this disaster. Some are true and some are definitely false. I've heard people blaming this tragedy on JP Richardson because he was a bigger guy. I've heard people saying that the plane crash happened because of an altercation on board since Buddy Holly always carried a gun. I've read about people thinking that since Richardson's body was found further away from the other ones, he must have still been alive and tried to find someone that could help them. None of these theories are true. An investigation was opened right after the crash and it determined that Peterson just wasn't skilled enough to fly that plane in those weather conditions. Since it was completely dark and he didn't know how to read the indicator, the pilot felt lost, had vertigo and probably thought he was gaining altitude, whereas he was actually flying towards the ground. That's why the plane impacted with a nose down attitude at a very high speed and since it was turned 90 degrees on its side, it lost its right wing straight away and cartwheeled on a cornfield for 540 feet. Due to the high speed, all the occupants of the aircraft died instantly. There is also no sign of a gunshot being fired, not on the bodies nor on the aircraft. Buddy Holly used to carry a gun, yes, but during those years, Musicians were paid cash and often found themselves traveling with a lot of money on themselves. And when you're touring with a bus that leaves you on the side of the road nearly every day, you need to have something to protect yourself. After the police found the wreckage, it's a matter of hours before newspapers, radio stations and TV channels all over the country spread the news. Three rock and roll idols have died in a plane crash. These were the words that informed the families of the victims of the death of their beloved sons, brothers, husbands and fathers. They learned the news with the rest of the world when they switched on their radios or TVs that morning. No one had called them. No one had called any of the family members to inform them about their loss. Both Maria Elena Holly and Adrian Richardson were pregnant. Maria Elena, who had married Holly only six months before, miscarried two days after learning about her husband's death. She then dedicated her whole life to preserving Buddy's legacy, but never forgave herself for not being there that night. A few days after the crash, in an interview with the Lubbock Avalanche Journal, she said, In a way, I blame myself. I was not feeling well when he left. I was two weeks pregnant, and I wanted Buddy to stay with me. 
but he had scheduled a tour. It was the only time I wasn't with him. And I blame myself because I know that if only I had gone along, Buddy never would have gotten into that airplane. And what happened to the other musicians that were on tour with them? When the tour bus arrived in Moorhead, the tour manager walked in the hotel and asked about the arrival of his three headliners, but he soon realizes he doesn't need an answer from the people at the desk. A newscaster on the television of the hotel's lobby is talking about the tragic incident, and now he has the hard task to inform the other musicians. People that on the road became buddies, Richie's and JP's friends. Dion relived the moment on his documentary, and it's truly heartbreaking. No one could believe what was happening. Was that real? He rushed back in the silent bus. Everything was quiet, but the world around him was falling apart. He looked around and saw Buddy's guitar, Rich's clothes, JP's hat. All these things were still on the bus, but they were not there. The following moments are quite hard. What to do now? Should we continue or should we go home? Today no one would probably object if they had cancelled the rest of the tour, but those guys, on the other hand, decided to continue, convinced that Bunny, JP and Richie would have wanted them to carry on. On that same night, the devastated musicians played as planned. I honestly don't know where they found the strength to do it, or how the audience found a will to go. But they did. And the craziest thing is that the people who were running the venue complained and wanted to pay them way less because three of the performers didn't show up. With many artists ready to lend a hand, including a not yet famous Bobby V, who performed Holly's songs for several nights, these amazing musicians managed to complete the tour. A lot has been said about this topic. Many songs, films, plays and books have been written about this tragedy. And what really helps me, and I hope helps all of you, is finding comfort in their legacy. Richie Valens showed us that representation matters, and in his short career managed to inspire countless musicians, especially the ones coming from marginalized communities. JP Richardson, the big bopper, literally gave a job to whoever invented MTV. And Buddy Holly, <sighs> well, not only was he one of the greatest musicians and songwriters to ever walk this earth, but his music and his persona shaped the 60s, the British invasion, and is still relevant today. After hearing about the plane crash, Tommy D wrote Three Stars, a beautiful song dedicated to the three musicians. Eddie Cochran, who knew both Richard Valens and Buddy Holly, recorded a moving rendition of it. But probably the most famous mention of this event is in the 1971 Don McLean song, American Pie where a 13-year-old McLean learns about the death of his idols when he is on his way to deliver newspapers. The biggest tragedy in rock and roll history that left him devastated and lost. Feelings that today, 64 years later, are still impossible to hide. Thank you for listening to The Cat's Whisker. I know this episode was quite <sighs> hard to record and I guess to listen to, but it needed to be done. These people are great and I will talk about them even more and I'll dedicate to each one of them an episode in the future. Thank you again for listening. You can follow me on TikTok at The Cat's Whisker and on Instagram at The Cat's Whisker Podcast because I always publish extra content there. And I'll see you next week. Ciao!